friends. This is Secret Sauce episode three, and the title of this episode is We're Artists, We're SAF part two, (laughs) which I know is a very creative title. Um, We're Artists, We're SAF is going to have three parts. SAF stands for Sensitive as Fuck, And I'm realizing as I'm saying that, I didn't give the disclaimer to mute this if you have little children around, so I apologize. Um, In general, you can expect me to swear pretty regularly on these podcasts. (laughs) I I enjoy a good swear word and use them. I would say not often, but definitely not seldom either. (laughs) I wanted to... Um, expand on the idea of sensitivity in three parts because to me um, to me sensitivity is one of the most misunderstood things for not just for, for me as an artist it was one of the most misunderstood parts of my life it was one of the things that I realize now truly kept me from being myself right I had these very false stories around my sensitivity um, and, and also I think that applies to other people, other creative people who are really primed to do revolutionary work, amazing work, who are here to put something onto the, onto the face of this planet to serve others with a thing that only they, out of all of the billions of people on the planet can actually do. And the false narratives around sensitivity that a lot of artists have keep them from doing that. And so to me, it's so important. I wanted to do three parts of it. The first um, part was episode two of this podcast, and it was about how I first viewed my sensitivity as a true superpower. And I told a story about how I navigated um, understanding that that manifestation, how I started telling new and better stories about my sensitivity and also how my sensitivity actually functions in the world. Cause I think everybody's functions differently. And for me, a lot of the time I would mistake other people's feelings for my own feelings. And when I recognized that was happening, um, that problem stopped happening nearly as much. And just like it, it took me 34 years <laughs> to get to the place of understanding that. And so, you know, of course, it's probably going to take me another 34 to work my way backwards out of that, but I'm okay with it because the trajectory of my creative life ever since has been amazing. I'm certain I couldn't have worked for myself before renegotiating some of the stories that I told myself about being weak, about being able to not hack it, about never, never would I have ever considered owning or running a business. The, the stories I told myself really, really incapacitated me. And also I just felt victimized by my sensitivity because I only viewed it as a, a, a treacherous thing almost. So in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about why um, the, the story that I've started to tell myself about why I'm sensitive and why I think a lot of creative people are also sensitive. Um, as I've said before, take what resonates with you, leave the rest. The parts that don't resonate aren't for you. And I 
think that is important. Um, one of the reasons I try to tell stories about my experience instead of giving advice is because I think embedded in stories, um, each person can extract what they need. Um, I've learned uh, over the course of being a school teacher for many years and also just interacting with lots of people artistically um, that advice is almost always not what people need. <laughs> people need to extract their own meaning. Um, and so I just I feel like giving that disclaimer is important because um, the nature of the internet today is sort of everyone wants to be kind of like an internet guru. And I worry like, oh, am I going to fall into that trap myself? Probably. In fact, I probably multiple times in these three episodes already have. And so it's important to me to sort of like educate y'all as listeners to, um, even if I sound like I know what I'm talking about, I'm just figuring it out like y'all. <laughs> and these are some of the things that have really helped me. And one of the things that really helped me after I sort of renegotiated stories around my sensitivity and truly viewed it as a superpower is I started to then really have a new understanding for why I was so sensitive. Because there's a lot, y'all, there's a lot under the surface of things in this world. Um, like, there's a reason why everybody, not just, not just me, but like, there's a reason why everybody um, can go like sit in a baseball stadium, like sit in a chair, not moving anywhere, right? Eating hot dogs. <laughs> like, it's like one of the most sedentary like experiences, right? And they can come home exhausted, right? Because there's so much happening in that environment, even if you're not physically moving. I think to me, a baseball stadium does this really awesome job of sort of explaining or showing how an energetic environment can tax everyone's systems, not just a sensitive person. But as a sensitive person, going into environments like that were like a triple whammy. And I had no idea, y'all. Until I was in my, my mid-30s, I just assumed I was really weird. Because all of, had most of my friends and family seemingly would leave the same environments and situations as me feeling great and I would just like need to go like hide <laughs> or if I couldn't go and hide I would like break down and melt down and cry and and it felt like it was coming out of absolutely nowhere and then I felt really bad about myself right and so I began to going forward from this experience in uh 2014 and 15 that I shared in the last episode I began to look more closely at how I felt everywhere. And it was amazing. It was illuminating. I, I um, mentioned in the last episode that um, when I got let go from that serving job, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you should definitely go back and listen. Um, I ended up landing a serving job um, at another 
restaurant that was really awesome. And I never cried at this restaurant. I never felt stressed at this restaurant. I mean, I felt normal stress, but not incapacitating stress. And it was because the energy of the owners and the management and the chef and the servers were so much better. And I remember when I was looking for another serving job after getting let go from this fancy steakhouse that had all those problems, um, I ended up with four interviews at four different um, like high-end upscale restaurants. And the thing that made me choose this particular restaurant that ended up being so amazing, and, and I mentioned before, it, it was the restaurant that, that I worked in until I stopped working um, for anybody ever again. It was the last job I worked for someone else before I began making art full time. It was a very special, special job. And the thing that the, the managers said to me in the interview <laughs> that made me go with them is that they, um, they, I had worked with one of them before and he was the director of, of uh, he was the bar director and I'll never forget, he looks at me and he says, you're awesome. We know you're awesome. What do you want so you can come work here? And I was like, oh, like that's the en- that energy? Yes, that energy, yes. Whereas I would go into other jobs and the energy was, can you hack it here? Are you going to be good enough to be here? And I realized, oh man, I, I need to pay attention to this. If I pay attention to the way people make me feel, um, maybe my life will get better. And y'all, it got better. Like, like in, in this particular way, it got better overnight, immediately better. Like it didn't take, like some of the changes I talk about on this podcast with my sensitivity um, are still very much in process some of them took years and years and years, but this was like immediate. And I really believe that this revelation um, was also the first time that I was really flexing, using my sensitivity muscles for my benefit. It was, it was taking that serving job. And then I thought, oh man, I need to do this all the time. And, and it was perfect timing because I was starting to get more clients on the side. Um, I was still doing sign work, uh, chalkboard hand lettering, and I was also doing some illustration. And I was getting more and more people reaching out. And I started to practice using my sensitivity muscles with other people. And I, would, I got in the habit of saying yes to people just by how their emails made me feel. And y'all, every time it was magic. Like I I was never wrong. Like (laughs) it was such an amazing realization when it came to my particular brand of sensitivity. I think everybody is sensitive in different ways. And so this might not be how you interact with others. And this might not be, you know, a muscle that you flex as easily. Maybe your sensitivity is in other ways. But for me, I instantly... Um, because I was so sensitive to people, I instantly could just tell, like, and I, I'm very proud of the fact that I've had almost no negative working situations in my four years working for myself. I've had two and both times, um, I, I ignored my intuition. I ignored my feelings about, about this, the people. 
So, so I began to make some changes in, in the environments that I would choose to go in. Um, I began to pay attention to how I was feeling after interacting with certain groups or going into certain places, and my life began to get easier. Um, and subsequently, other things were getting much harder. Um, working for myself flared up my sensitivity in a way that I'll talk about in other episodes <laughs> because working for myself, working for myself was a true, uh, true healing process for sure. And I think that a lot of people actually deep down know that if they're going to work for themselves, they're going to have to heal some shit. <laughs> and that's, what's really scary. Like we're, we like think that working for ourselves as artists is scary because you know, we're sensitive or we are not necessarily great at business or we're not organized or there's all kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about why we would be bad at it. But I think deep down, we also know that there's lots of healing to do if you're going to work for yourself. And man, oh, did that end up being the case for me? Um, but in some ways, my life started to immediately get better. And it was at this time that I happened to just one day be floating through the internets and I caught this article that Business Insider did about LeBron James. And the the title of the article was something about LeBron's self-care, which caught my attention. And, you know, I'm not, y'all, I'm not, <laughs> you know this if you know me well, I'm not a professional sports follower. Um, my husband loves sports. I do not. I don't know a ton of artists that like really get into sports, but I, I definitely know that it's a nuanced thing that we all are different and unique little grains of sand. Um, and, <laughs> but I am really intrigued by LeBron. Um, I'm from Cleveland. I actually, uh, for a period of time, my first ever apartment that I had by myself was right next to the high school that he played at while he was there in Akron, Ohio. And whether you like him or not, um, or whether you follow sports or not, I think everyone can kind of objectively agree that he's an amazing basketball player. And I'm intrigued by all kinds of um, outliers, I guess you could say, when it comes to you know doing their life's work. And he's clearly doing his life's work. Like he was absolutely born to do this work. And this article said that he's spends an estimated $1.5 million a year on taking care of his body. And I immediately thought, oh, of course, of course, like, of course he does. Like, that's his, his main asset. If anything happens to his body, he can't do his work. And I thought immediately, I thought, what do I need to protect to do my work better because I was, y'all, I was in the thick of drowning by this point. In some ways, my life was getting so much easier. I was always picking really amazing clients. I was getting amazing clients. My retail and wholesale businesses were exploding. I went from, <laughs> I went from waiting tables and working for myself on the side to working full-time for myself in only eight months, which is really fast. Um, and I was getting big clients like, you know, Dell Children's Hospital and HEB. And this was all within eight months. Like it was so fast and I was so overwhelmed and I had no boundaries because I just wanted the goodness to keep going. Right. And so here I am, a sensitive person 
trying to navigate their sensitivity better. And what I didn't realize is I had a ton of triggers around work. And so I was taking care of my sensitivity when it came to who I was interacting with or where I was interacting. But when it came to work, I had no boundaries. I was working like 24 seven. Like there was a period where I went three months working every day. And then I would like have these massive breakdowns, like really, like really unhinged breakdowns. And Jason, we weren't, we were still just dating at the time. And, um, for those of you that know it, Jason and I dated six years before we got married. And part of it was just that there was no continuity. Like I was not in a good place for a huge part of the first half of our relationship and his amazing steadfast support during that time is how I knew I wanted to marry his ass. He's amazing. And I would just like freak, like freak out and just lose it. And he would be like, Becca, when was the last time you had a day off? Like, good Lord. On top of that, you're sensitive. You have to have days off. Like, what are you doing? Right. And this is something that took me much longer to learn. And I saw, but I was in the thick of this when I ran into this article and I thought to myself, why is self-care so hard for me around my work? It's so like, and I, and at first I thought, well, maybe it's because Le- I mean, LeBron makes tons of money. Of course, self-care is easy for him. And then I was like, no, but that's not it. Like I have the resources to, to take care of myself and I'm not. Why is it so hard for me to take care of myself around my work? I understand my sensitivity better than ever. I understand how important it is to protect it, and I'm not protecting it. What is going on? And that's when I realized the the problem for me was that I still felt really unjustified in taking care of my energy because my energy is invisible. I mean, it certainly manifested physically. I was bawling like every other day, but like energy is, is invisible. And a lot of the energetic work that I was doing is invisible. And this is something I think a lot of artists run into and they don't necessarily realize that they're doing it. But if you think about it in terms of LeBron, it makes it a little bit easier. So for LeBron, he his work is in the physical world. It's so easy to understand. We see it with our eyes. We hear it with our ears. He crashes into other players. He taxes his muscles in front of our very eyes um, in practices and games day in and day out. When he's sore after a game and needs to go sit in an ice bath and spend thousands of dollars on massage and cryogenic therapy and all these other things, nobody's confused about why he needs to do those things. We understand his work. But if an artist is doing the same thing, right? They're going out into the world and and their literal function is to feel under the surface of things and then reflect on it artistically. The stuff they bash into is harder to see. And in fact, almost never do you see it. It's invisible, but it's still very much there. And just like you get blowback from crashing into other players on a court, 
Artists get blowback from crashing into other things out in the world. It's just those things are feelings and those things are energies and those things are under the surface of the world. And our world is still really vague on that stuff. Um, And I, I, I shared this sort of like thought experiment on my Instagram the other day to sort of illustrate what that might look like if we flipped the tables with the LeBron metaphor, right? It would be like if LeBron was born into a world that didn't understand physical stuff. Like it, it had no concept for understanding sight, smell, hearing, touch, like those things. I mean, that's a hard world to imagine, right? But like, let's just say that this world doesn't understand physical senses at all. And LeBron happens to be born into a body that's really good at navigating physicality. And when he's really young, he discovers basketball and he loves it. He's wired to do it, right? This is the work he's here to do. He comes home the first day and he says, mom, I played basketball today. It was amazing. And she says, what's basketball? And he tries to tell her about it. And she has no basis for understanding a single thing that he's saying. And he starts to feel crazy. And she's kind of worried about him too, right? And so eventually he stops telling her about it. And he stops telling a lot of people about it. In fact, maybe he even stops noticing that he's doing it because the rest of the world doesn't really see it anyway, right? But he keeps playing because he's wired to do that. And because he keeps playing day in and day out, he also has blowback from it and normal blowback. When I say blowback, I mean like sore muscles, right? Tired limbs, um, you know, bruises from bashing into other players. (laughs) But he doesn't have a family that understands basketball as a thing at all. And so when he needs help with taking care of himself, he has none. And so every day he comes home and he doesn't do anything to rest. He doesn't do anything to soothe his muscles. He's, and and eventually, playing basketball day in and day out this way, he starts to have breakdowns. And people start to say, what, what's going on with LeBron? And his mother starts to worry, right? She She starts calling her friends on the phone and she says, I'm a little worried about LeBron. I think he has physical illness. Oh no, not physical illness, they say, right? (laughs) And then, yeah, I think maybe he needs to go on medication, you know? Oh no, we're so sorry. LeBron's mom, I don't know her real name, sorry. Um, I'm not trying to make any generalizations here, but I am, I do think this thought experiment's interesting because I wonder sometimes if this type of thing happens to our creative people, right? That If you don't take care of yourself and if you were raised in a culture that had no support for you to do those things, would you start to very quite naturally have much larger blowback from it, more breakdowns from it? And would the society then start to view LeBron in that world as weak? Probably. Would they start to call him weak? Would he start to view himself as weak? Yeah. And if he started to view himself as weak, would that keep him from playing basketball? Probably. This idea I'm obsessed with because this is one of the things I think really gets in the way of artists doing really powerful, 
meaningful, revolutionary work. It's this fundamental belief that they can't hack it. And the reason they think they can't hack it is because they were born into a culture that has completely distorted their perception of their abilities. And so so I'm like sitting in my living room here in Austin, reading this Business Insider article, having this sort of like download of, of a realization. And I... I was, I was forever changed by it. I was forever changed by it. And I realized as I was sitting there, I have friends, artist friends, who are absolutely performing at the elite level when it comes to feeling the planet and responding to it artistically. Like they're LeBron level, right? And they've figured out some ways to take care of themselves, but they have lots of blowback from not taking care of themselves enough. Um, we know some of these things because we see them all the time. There's this sort of understanding that creative artistic types are very prone to substance abuse. And, you know, I really think the substances are a really easy way in our culture to try to deal with the, the, the sort of beating that our energetic bodies take as artists, um, but it's just numbing, right? It's, it's, and you continue to still go out into the world and, and the actual situation isn't getting dealt with. It would be like if LeBron starts like drinking <laughs> and doing drugs to try to like numb out the muscle pain he's having from doing basketball every day. Like that's, I don't know if this metaphor is is sticking for everybody. But for me, this metaphor was life-changing because what I think a lot of artists need to hear is that they are doing badass work, like LeBron-level work. And the problem isn't them. The problem is the world. And there's pros and cons to taking that narrative too far because at the end of the day, we can only change ourselves. And I, I sometimes worry that if I share this idea with artists that they're like, oh, it's all the world's fault, you know? <laughs> um, that'll be a story for another time because I definitely went through a phase of blaming everything <laughs> in the world. Um, but when you realize that you're not at fault for every single thing that you're sensitive for, you can make changes in your own life. That's, that's sort of the takeaway of this episode. And it was a huge takeaway for me in my life was, oh, maybe the culture did a shitty job the first 34 years of my life with helping me with this, but there are resources out there and I'm going to find them. And I found a lot more of them in Austin <laughs> when I moved here, which is a huge part of why I stayed here. Um, so why am I sharing this story? One of the reasons is because this story isn't new. This story, this idea that artists um, interact 
with another realm that that we don't experience with our five senses. Maybe we would call it the sixth sense, although I feel like even the sixth sense is kind of limited because I feel like there's definitely a seventh and an eighth and a ninth sense. I'm, sh- I'm certain of it. I don't know what they are, but I know they must be there. But this idea that that's where artists do their work is not new. It is new maybe to the 21st century, but it's it's it absolutely has its roots in pre-enlightenment thinking. Um, the Greeks and the Romans before the enlightenment had this fascinating understanding of artistry. They really didn't believe that artists made things. They believed that artists channeled things, that they were a conduit and that they would tap into another realm and then the things from that other realm would come through them. And in both of those cultures, they had names for the sort of entity on the other side that would communicate with the artists. In um, Rome, I think it was the, a daemon, and in Greece, it was a genius. And they believed, and artists in those eras would talk very openly about the relationship they had with their genius, they had with their daemon. This was like a very comfortable idea. And then the Enlightenment happened, and we swung really far the other way, right? And towards more scientific, deterministic thinking, the the man and woman became the center of everything. And there was very little room for ideas like this. And so these sort of ideas faded into the backlogs of history a little bit. And I think that we find ourselves now in 2020, slowly balancing the pendulum back a little bit. And we're starting to understand that think there's so much that we can't see or touch or taste or hear that's absolutely there. Um, the scientist Nikola Tesla, so respected, <laughs> so, so respected, he famously said that when scientists started studying invisible phenomena, they would make more progress in one year than they had in the entire history of science. And I believe that. And I think artists are doing something very similar, right? Like it used to be like 400 years ago that if you wanted to be a painter, for example, you better learn how to paint some bowls of fruit pretty realistically. You better do some nice landscapes or no one's going to buy your shit, right? And then we get into the 20th century and suddenly there's this market for paintings of feelings, right? Of dreams, of invisible things. Artists started 100 years ago trying to make physical representations of invisible things. Artists are energy workers. And we're so used to thinking of artists in terms of the things that they make, the song that they write, the poem that they write, the painting that they paint, that we get hung up on the product and we forget there's this energetic process that's absolutely happening behind the scenes of everything they make all the time. The example that I sort of um, use when I explain this to other people to to make it less abstract is um, a song that deeply touched me, um, and that's Whitney Houston's One Moment in Time. She is kind of like the LeBron of singers, right? Like, even if you don't love her style, we all can kind of objectively agree that she is an amazing singer. But even if her type of music isn't really for you, 
I would almost bet that if everyone listening to this tries this out (laughs) and they go on Google and pull up um, a track of One Moment in Time and play it, and while they play it, if you listen to the song and hold in your mind a memory of a time where you felt really trapped in some kind of prison, whether it's literal or figurative or metaphorical, and and this particular memory has to also be a memory of a time that you were trapped and then overcame it. And if you hold that memory in your mind while listening to that song the entire time, I am guessing most of you will get teary just a little bit, if not full on crying. <laughs> like, I, I, the first time I heard that song, that's what I did. I was like reflecting on some a recent memory of this really amazing thing that I'd overcome. And as she's like hitting the final notes of that song at the very end, I just started to weep. And I I remember later, um, as I was reflecting on that, I thought, do I imagine that if Whitney, a person I've never met, (laughs) can reach across space and time with her music and make me cry she like literally changed my emotions. Do I imagine that she didn't first have to bang up against a lot of emotions in her own life? I mean, yeah, artists are energy workers. If they're going to touch someone else's energy, they have to work in it day in and day out. And it's hard for me to even record this podcast episode because I don't even really know what energy is, we still don't, like we're, we're starting to understand, right? Like you can read on quantum mechanics and there's all kinds of science that's starting to explain this kind of stuff. But like Nikola Tesla said, we don't really know. Um, and yet we know it's there. Um, this, this episode probably sounds a little bit woo, but I don't mean it to be. Nothing I'm talking about is made up. We know that energy is a thing. You can read about it. in in quantum mechanics. It's a thing. And yet we don't understand it very well at all in this culture. And so artists don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they are like LeBron playing basketball every day without resting and then breaking down and feeling weak for it. And my goal in this episode is for you to leave feeling strong because I am starting to really wrap my head around this idea that artists aren't, they're not actually weak. They're no more weak than LeBron would be if he played every day without taking care of himself. Like, truly. And, and some that are really unhinged and some that have deep, deep mental health issues, what if they're, what if they're even more talented at energetic artistry than we realize and work even harder than we realize. And that's why their breakdown and their struggle and their stress is even more proportionately awful. I don't even know if that's the right way to, to word that, <laughs> but uh, you probably are kind of jiving with what I'm trying to say. I... I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. I don't understand psychotherapy. I don't understand mental illness. I, this is a story that I used to reframe my own work. 
and it changed my life for the better. And if it resonates with you, I hope it helps as well. Because um, 2018, this this Business Insider article, this like thought experiment, like I wrote all this shit in my journal. <laughs> this was the beginning of the turning point for me, for me uh, for my well-being as a human and also working in the arts. Um, I'm certain that if I hadn't had this sort of order of revelations that I would have eventually burned out working for myself. Um, the, the true care that I take to, to protect my energy now would, would have been impossible before realizing this. And the types of things that I do to take care of my spirit so that I can continue to do this work are insane. Like if I had looked if, if 2010 Becca looked at 2020 Becca, she would be like, what are you doing? You know, that I would, there's no way I would have given myself permission to take care of myself in the way that I needed to back then because I was so ashamed. And, and that's why I wanted to do this episode. We don't need to feel bad anymore about who we are. We don't. In fact, this is like the best time to kind of just put double, double, double middle fingers to the wind, isn't it? Because there's so much going on in the world that is so big that you, you as an artist claiming yourself and saying a big F you to the world, I'm sensitive as fuck and I love it. I mean, this is the best time to do it because no one's going to notice. <laughs> They've got other things on their mind. <laughs> I love y'all. Um, I hope this was helpful. Take what resonates with you, leave the rest, and I'll be coming back at you with part three of this series where artists were sensitive as fuck in one week's time. Peace.